Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. and let's get started here. So thank you for coming to our third Murder on the Space Coast live event. This obviously is the Where is Brandy Hall season and uh, our numbers have gone off the charts. Before we start, I just want to um, acknowledge my executive editor, Bob Gabordi, who's here with his lovely wife, Donna. And um, honestly, he is the one that has had the foresight um, to really you know, dive deep into podcasting and he has really allowed me to do the shows uh, with all the resources that I need and the time that I need to to really make them work well. Um, and the other person I want to acknowledge and have her come up for a second is Mara Bellaby, my editor of the newsroom. I feel like David Letterman or something up here. Hi. Thank you. Uh, well, I've never stood up on a stage like this, so this is pretty cool. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, thank you. As John said, my name is Mara Bellaby. I'm the news director at Florida Today. And we want to welcome all of you to our Murder on the Space Coast live event, Where is Brandy Hall? We're really um, excited about what we're going to, uh, this discussion tonight. And this podcast, we went into it, I think, very pumped because we, uh, we won an EPI. I don't know if you know what an EPI is, but it's an international award from editor and publishers for the best podcast for 2017 for season two. So, um, that, so that was amazing. And this podcast, season three, has done fantastic. Just in the last week, we've had about 30,000 listens, which for all of you listeners know is really good because we actually ended season three a few weeks ago. And overall, in counting all three seasons, we're really fast approaching 500,000 listens. So that's tremendous. But for us, it's not about the numbers. It really is about the stories. And for podcasting in particular, it's kind of almost like going back a little bit, as Bob Gabordi uh, likened it to when we first started talking about it, to kind of old-time radio serials. And it really is. It's a chance for us to really show off um, kind of what we're good at and to dive into very important stories in the community and to do our investigative journalism and our storytelling and to try to reach a new audience and to get people to really take a look at us in a different way. You know, we're as guilty as anyone sometimes as referring to ourselves as the newspaper. Um, and we're proud of that, but we're really so much more. And what this is is a chance to to have it not be so much about the medium, but about what we're doing, about the stories and the journalism. And so when we talk about what topics we're gonna pick for all three seasons, we are very careful in what we choose. Uh, for season one and season two, we really focused on uh, injustices or perceived injustices. And for season three, we decided to go a little different, but we wanted to go at a cold case that it's really an injustice that it hasn't been solved, not only for Brandy, but for her loved ones. So they were very important cases to us. And one thing that I really want you to know is that we're committed to staying with it. Even now, John is working to get in the prison to go visit Gary Bennett from season one, 
so we can update on his case and keep that in front of people, um, all the questions that are there. And similarly, we're not going to walk away from the Brandy Hall case. We're going to keep you updated on leads, on anything that happens. Uh, that is our commitment to you. And now before I turn it over to John and you get started on, on really what you're here for, I did want to acknowledge uh, one John's key partner in this, who is Rob Landers, who I can't see because the lights are shining on me, but I hope he'll raise his hand. <laughs> Rob is the producer on the podcast, and he and John work very closely together. They do the magic that makes each episode really special. Um, and, and without the two of them, we, we just really wouldn't have murder on the Space Coast. Also not here tonight, but I do want to, just, uh, if you'll uh, permit me, just to acknowledge uh, Jennifer Sangalang, who is our social media guru. It was really her that we counted on to get the message out and to reach people about this. And judging by the numbers, she did a fantastic job. And Rachel Thomas, who is behind the whereisbrandyhall.com. If you haven't checked out that webpage, please do. It has the scripts for every single episode. It has videos. If you're like me and you listen and you want to see what the people look like, you can go and there's photographs. There's a chance to, to an interactive that helps you with the timeline and, and just lots of information. So check out whereisbrandyhall.com and that's the work of Rachel Thomas. And so again, thank you very much. We really appreciate your support. It helps us keep doing journalism like this. Thank you. Thanks, Mara. Thank you. Okay, so um, just a few notes here. Those weapons on the wall have nothing to do with the podcast, okay? So, so it's just an unfortunate coincidence, and uh, the only things that are real are the axes, so if the zombie apocalypse does take place tonight, I would go for those, okay? First, um, we did so well in our previous two events at Open Mics on US1 in Melbourne that we outgrew the place. And so I'm sorry that I maybe overestimated or overestimated how many we would get here tonight. But this is a lovely venue, and Brian Bergeron has been fantastic with us. He's the guy that runs this place. He puts on great productions here. And, yeah. <clears throat> and, and, you know, he's, he's kind of a genius because he cast me as Juan Perón a few months ago in Evita. And so that was really great. And I'm going to be the Wizard of the Wizard of Oz here in a few months. So... Um, so before we get to our guests, I just thought it would, it would be nice to start the program with a sort of a tribute to Brandy, because as Mara said, we start every, every season with a goal. You know, we can tell wild stories. There are a lot of wild stories that happened here on the Space Coast, the vampire rapist, you know, other things, but what's the goal? And we want to bring Brandy home. And so, um, there's a, a little, you know, video, you know, montage of the people involved in her case whether you like them or not. So, and again, the, the, all the weapons are fakes. So if you could roll the, the video, that'd be great. Thank you. 
And I forgot to warn everybody that the only photo of Doc Jones I could get was shirtless. Sorry. So <laughs> anyway, we're going to start the program. We're going to bring up um, a retired Miami detective of over 30 years. Uh, he also began the first cold case unit in Miami. Uh, he writes for Florida Today often. He's the author of several books and plays a hell of a violin. If you ever need somebody for your wedding or your, or your bar mitzvah. I'd like to bring up Marshall Frank. Oh, there he is. Can't see. Hey, buddy. Come on up. Yeah, that's pretty bright. Have a seat next to me here. Or have a seat. And will somebody... You sit next to you. Oh, well, there. Well, go over here. Fine. Yeah, yeah, that's good there. Will somebody just let me know when 15 minutes is about, because I can't see anything. But, um, so, Marshall... Um, Obviously, you have a history with cold cases. Um, what what you know makes a case cold? At what point in a murder investigation or a like missing person investigation is is it cold? <laughs> That's open ended. I know. Okay, we've had cold cases that were thirty years old and suddenly got solved because some guy in a bar said, "Oh, you know, I took care of that." And some guy got drunk and started saying things and was suspicious, and he got. Uh, I know one particular case of this happened, and uh, the authorities were called uh, in Dade County. This took place in Georgia, and they said, this guy sounds like he killed somebody. And, you know, and uh, the short story is that he did, and they, they closed the case like 30 years later. You know, uh, it wasn't a case that was being investigated, but it was from that point on. And uh, every case that's open is a cold case. All right. Some are more closable than others. Right. All right. right. So, uh, I mean, like when we had the Mariel boat lift in Miami, we had uh, tripled the murder rate overnight for about two years. And we had bodies that had no fingerprints on file and we had uh, suspects who had no fingerprints on file. So uh, the medical examiner's office had to rent uh, a, a refrigerated truck just to put the bodies in. Wow. And so, it, you know, those were all cold cases in more ways than one. Um, so, and then you want to go back to some of these cases. I mean, I've seen investigators that wanted to go back to a case they had two years ago or a year ago. But then in the, uh, the flow of cases that keep coming in, uh, you have to keep working the, the freshest cases. So, uh, in, uh, I think it was 1979, it was 80, but in 1980, uh, there was a couple of cases that, came, that you know, brought, were brought to the surface that were old, that were a few years old. 
and uh, clues came in. I assigned detectives to it. And sure enough, these guys, were, they, they loved working the cold cases because they, they, you know, somebody got away with it for six years or five years or something like that, you know. And then they were able to actually arrest the person and with, with hard evidence and put them away for, for a murder they thought they would never be caught for. Well, now, in this case, as you probably know, uh, the Palm Bay um, you know, cops brought in two retired detectives, yes. Doc Jones, who right. is not here tonight with us, but uh, uh, he will be listening to this at some point, and... And Sid Liddell, have you ever heard of anybody doing that before? Or and, and yeah, yeah, and is that beneficial? I mean, was, was it still working a case after you retire? Well, well, it just you know, it's a like a fresh set of eyes. You know, guys who who had not worked on the case before brought yeah, in to yeah, go that, look at that the case. That does help, yeah. uh, especially if you take if you if one guy has had that case, or one guy, one woman maybe uh, has had that case for a while, and it didn't go anywhere. Uh, is, it's not always because it's investigated wrong, but once in a while, uh, somebody had a closed mind. So uh, you, you hand it over to somebody with fresher eyes and fresher mind, and they see something, or they spot something, or they suspect something that no one else did before. And it's just like art. What, what you see is different than what someone else sees. And uh, we've had a lot of cases closed that way. What the most frustrating thing is, is when we, we have cold cases, when we really know 99% who did it and how it was done, but the legalities prevent you from making an arrest. Mm. You don't have a, enough of a case where you can present it to a jury. Mm. I've had cases like that. And how do you deal with that? What happens then? You, just... you go to the next case. Wow. You can't make that a, a one case a career. Right. Um, we're going to hear later from Brandy's mom, Debbie, who's, he, who's out here in the audience, and, um, and uh, she is very emotional 11 years later about this. Absolutely. For a police officer, for an investigator, how do you deal with the emotion? Because I'm sure that you get attached to, to cases and families as well. How do you handle that stuff? Actually, uh, I've gotten not very close, but close to uh, some family members of uh, victims uh, of murder. Uh, especially if I was the one that had to go knock on the door and say, I have a, have a message for you. That's the toughest job a policeman has, is a knock on a door and you know you're going to be telling somebody that their loved one's gone. I, I can't think of anything more. I mean, I, I've been in firefights and all this kind of stuff. That's you know, a lot of tough stuff. But the emotions that, they, that, that wrangle up when you have to knock on a door and you know that you're, you're going to tell some woman or man that their child is gone. Uh, and this case is probably even worse for the family because there's no closure. Because, there's no closure, Because yeah. we don't know where Brandy is and, and, and exactly what happened to her. And, and yeah. I suspect that, I, and I haven't talked to the investigators in this case. I don't know them. I'm sure they're good guys or men or women. Uh, but... They probably have a, some ideas about oh. which they can't say yeah. publicly. Yeah, well, obviously you haven't listened to the podcast. So <laughs> when you get home, murder on the say, No, I'm just kidding, Marshall. Yes, they, okay. um, uh, a lot of people feel like they know yeah. um, the well, one or two uh, people, you know. I've, I've, I've done a cursory review of the case yeah, online. Yeah. Right. And I have those feelings the same way. Yeah, and, yep. and in Marshall's defense, I told him not to look at the, at the case because I just wanted him just to come here and just talk about cold cases in general and, and just, you yep. know, like start off that way. So, um, <laughs> um, but 
when you do listen to the podcast, they um, a lot of people feel like this case is like something you mentioned before. They're 99% there or 90% there. And, um, I mean, is it just a matter of luck? I mean, no, it's, can it's somebody a matter really of, kill somebody? And, and, and It's a matter of admissible evidence. All right, and evidence that gets past the, the prosecutor's office, and they, they say that this is uh, this this uh, crosses the bar. You can prosecute with this evidence, and then they go for it. The the, it's the, the investigators are also beholden to what the prosecutor's office say, say you can do and not do. And uh, so it's not just a one-man thing. It's not just one detective that decides. And he has to go through the you know the state attorney's offices as well. And sometimes the state attorney's office will say. Well, yeah, you probably you probably got the right idea, but we don't have enough that we can prosecute with. Wow. And, and, and you can't go public with that. Right. And, you know, on, on TV, it, it just seems so easy. On these shows on TV, right? I know. But they solve them in one hour. That's, that's because the sponsors are so rich. <laughs> exactly. Um, I know that you've read a little bit of AE about this case. Yeah. It, Cursory. It's online. Right, right. Any... Any thoughts on it, or just or anything that uh, anything that you want to share about this case, uh, just you know, from a law enforcement standpoint. You want to open that door? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just you know, briefly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know who did this, and I wish you know. No, obviously, nobody knows for sure with evidence. However, it reminds me of a case that uh, I knew about early in my early in my homicide career, and uh, this was a case where somebody. Uh, a woman was missing for a number of days. This was just a matter of days. And uh, the husband called the police and said, my wife's missing, I don't know what happened. And that went on for several days. About a week later, the homicide office got a phone call from a neighbor of that house where that man lived and the woman. And the neighbor said, uh, it's the strangest thing, you know, I know you've got a missing person and she lived right behind me. But the, the guy, about 2 o'clock in the morning, he was out digging a hole in his yard, and I don't understand oh what he was boy. doing. Wow. So they went and got a search warrant. And they dug up the uh, septic tank. And there she was. Wow. I don't know. That it just it, it, right. it, it kind of like reminds me of that. I'm certain that that's not what happened here. Right, right. Of course. Well, has anyone checked under a septic tank <laughs> in this case? But, um, but, but you never know. Right. And, and, and people who are involved in murders uh, can be very deceiving, especially if, they're, if it's their butt on the line. Now, let me ask you, is it, um, and I mean, you know, like there's no real answer to this, I'm sure, but if, if it wasn't a planned event, how hard is it to just get away with it so perfectly all these years? Hundreds of thousands have done that. You know, one is luck. Uh, sometimes it's just the luck of the, the caseload. <laughs> Investigators sometimes get get waves of caseloads that they can't. The numbers of them can't handle all of it, so they have to keep up with the the workload. And as a result, the investigate the, the cases don't get investigated well enough. And uh, some of our cold case people have gone back since we started the cold case squad. And they would go back 10 years or 15 years to some cases, and bingo, they found. Hey, I think I know who did this. And sure enough, they find the fingerprints or the palm prints or, or somebody they confessed to or something like that. And it could have been closed all along. They just didn't have the manpower at the time to get it done. And sometimes the investigators can be, I'm sure that they're here now, they'll probably agree with me, that they can get overwhelmed 
uh, if there's a large amount of work to do. Where can people find your books, Marshall? You can find my books at uh, Amazon.com, MarshallFrank.com, and uh, or you go to a bookstore and ask for it, or or uh, go to my website. All right, great. Well, thank you for coming, and we're going to have you back up later okay. for um, thank you. our Q and A section. Okay. But by the way, I just want to say thank you to Florida today. You guys are doing a hell of a job, and and bringing these things to the forefront, and especially you, John Torres. Thanks, Marshall. Is there a Tom Davis in the house? I can't see. Where's Tom Davis? Come on up, buddy. So a show of hands out there. I know I have some friends here that um, were here too, um, just because I asked them to, but they haven't listened yet to the podcast. Has everybody listened to seasons one and two? Okay, so you know this guy's voice. He's got one of the greatest voices. Hold that microphone there, Tom. This is Tom Davis. Um, Ray, uh, he was with FDLE, he was a profiler, um, he was one of only two or three profilers in the state. And the thing about Tom Davis is that anytime I look up some, some case from the 80s or 90s, his name is in the article or something. I mean, when you hear his name, you know something bad has happened to somebody. Because Tom Davis is there on, on the scene. So Tom, we thank you. You were on seasons one and two. And then... Um, I was actually interviewing uh, Jeff Hall, who happens to be out here tonight. Um, you know, Jeff uh, and, his, and, his, and his daughters, Lacey and Taylor. Taylor, right. Um, and he said, yeah, I know um, I got interviewed um, on the first night by this uh, FDLE guy. I think he was the mayor of a... I said, Tom Davis? He goes, yeah, that's him, Tom Davis. I'm like, boy, Tom is everywhere. So we appreciate you, Tom, and also for helping us out here um, with Murder on the Space Coast. Uh, Murder on the Space Coast. Um, you weren't heavily involved in this case, but can you tell us, can you just recount um, how you got involved early on? And just hold the microphone up to your okay. mouth. Okay. Uh, we, uh, FDLE, had got a request uh, from the, uh, the city of Palm Bay Police Department to assist. Uh, my area of expertise, uh, as John mentioned, is, is profiling criminalists and uh, interview statement analysis and those type things, which is, is good. Uh, this particular case, I remember well the, uh, the first morning. Uh, After the truck was found, is that the... Uh, uh, correct, yeah. and I was at the police, or we were invited, we went to the police department and a particular individual came in to talk to one of the uh, detectives. And I was able to observe uh, that interview. It was very, there was a lot of behavior a lot of indicators when I apply my interview experience and training and statement analysis uh, theories that certainly, uh, well, you've been pretty candid about this whole thing. I, I'm right, so, not it's, to be, it, well, uh, so it was Randall Richmond. He was being interviewed by the police. Correct. On the Friday. Okay. And he was what? He was very emotional. He was what was you know what was he behaving like? Unequivocally, uh, he's not here, is he? <laughs> I hope hope he I is. I'd love to have him. I'd love to have him come up. But I haven't. I'm, 
I've got my buck. That's all I've got with me tonight. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, John, uh, a textbook response to me of a very guilt-ridden individual who showed great emotional uh, expressions, uh, which, well, some of the family or people may disagree, of an individual does have some moral uh, standards that they guilt begins to sometimes throw them off kilter. And as Marshall mentioned, there are certain things. This particular time is the great time to get a full confession. And it didn't happen. Uh, I wasn't, you know, and I'm not, not to be critical uh, at all. That's not the purpose. But if I were asked that day, in fact, if you ask me tonight, based on what I know, what was said, and what I observed, that particular morning, yeah. I would have narrowed my scope of where I would have spent my time gotcha. for the entire investigation. And, um, and again, we're not trying to be critical of, of anybody uh, in this because, I mean, I'm not a police officer and I have no idea how hard the job is, the investigator. But on the, um, we had some interviews that were, you know, broadcast on the podcast of you and Wayne Ivey before he was sheriff. He was FDLE agent Wayne, Wayne Ivey with you, uh, interviewing Randall Richmond. And when he referred to that interview with the police and he said, um, yeah, when I, when I came in, I spoke with Jess and Kevin. And immediately, my producer Rob and I, we looked at each other like, Jess and Kevin. It's like he was, it, it sounded like they were buddies or, or something. Um, uh, you know, and I'm sure that like fire personnel have to get called into court with with you know like police officers you know from time to time and 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 all that. Is it a problem? Do you think to have the hometown police investigate something? I mean, I know it was the first day, so you can't really do anything about it. But uh, I mean, was that an issue? Do you think or? Yes, it can be an issue. Um... Personally, what you would like to see happen is if you said, hey, Tom, I'm like, hey, bud, you know why? Because then I can establish the rapport and Judge Majid's here and he knows that I followed all of the rights of every individual. But that being said, that's a golden opportunity sometimes to get that person to not want to be Mirandized you have the right, the movie thing, to remain silent. Right, right. Uh, that type thing. Uh, so, in other words, if, if he's talking and he's being cooperative, you don't want to Mirandize him because then he might clam up? Is that... Uh, I would never want to deny anybody the right to counsel. Right, no, right, of course. But... <laughs> they don't ask, I don't tell, okay? Right. Um, yeah, you don't have to offer it, right? I mean, he... No. I'm not required to offer, and right. as long as I listen and don't interrogate. Right. Now, in these cases where um, a, a you know, like a woman goes missing, we know it's always the husband, right? Always the husband. And the focus um, might have been on Jeff Hall from the start, 
but you were the only one who said, well, I'm going to go talk to him. Correct. On that first night. So he, yes. was, uh, he was at the, uh, he was appealing his case. He was going to come out of the Osceola, uh, Osceola County Jail, I think, that night. And he's watching TV without sound, and he sees his wife's truck being pulled out of the water, and his name is flashing across, and you went up there. What was your first impression when you met Jeff, and, and you know, uh, what did you come away with? Well, he was a captive audience, Jeff was, for <laughs> sure. Uh, I believe genuinely that, that he was startled. He, he, he did tell me, what the hell is going on? I just saw on TV, uh, as you said, no sound, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I would have to say that was kind of an awkward position because what you're about to tell the guy is uh, a very dear loved one may have been murdered, met with his or her demise. Uh, no, I, I, I honestly, after 40 years in the business, John, you, you, you don't, you, you've got a gut that you get the feeling and it's been wrong, wrong less after 40 years and a lot of, a lot of cases, but uh, I, I, I had no feeling about Jeff. In fact, I do remember days and weeks that followed. I was not, as you'd mentioned, uh, asked to be a daily part of it, if you will. Uh, the one person I really felt that we needed was to uh, was get Jeff uh, as a profiler, as a criminalist. Uh, things I always look for if if the deceased is not there to speak for his or herself, I want the person who spent the most time and is the closest with them. And typically, that is a spouse or a parent if they're still at home. Um, and I, I felt Jeff could have been a real attribute. But at the same time, I certainly didn't feel um, any negative feeling from him when he employed counsel. I would have. I mean, I, I would have. I mean, right. And for those of you who haven't listened to the podcast yet, it was kind of a perfect storm in a bad, a very bad way. But uh, Jeff was appealing uh, a felony case, um, a marijuana case, and his attorneys prohibited him from speaking with the police on this case, because anything that he could have said in this case, would have, um, it could have been used against him in the felony drug case. And so as lawyers, they would be practicing, um, it is malpractice, I guess, you know, if they had advised him to go and speak uh, to Jeff's credit the second the appeal uh, went, um, you know, it was, you know, like ruled on, he, he spoke to the police and he, and he called them. Um, Tom, is this case solvable? Do you think? Yes. Uh, it's if I, you know, yes. The answer is yes, John. Uh, I think every, sixteen years on Ed Smith, Sid and I are believers. <laughs> yeah. Which I was my next question, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, uh, again, I, I do not know the finite items of evidence that they still have. Uh, so I am probably reasonably safe in assuming that all the proper testing's been done on what is applicable. Uh, 
in that the suspect and the victim had a uh, reason to make have contact anyway that always complicates even if you did have because all you got to do is say sure my DNA my hair whatever was there uh, because we I've been there you right know? So, well and but, you know and uh, detective Mike Pusatier and also Ernie Diebel before him who has retired told me that we'd love to have um, Randall Richmond and his wife Anne Marie in for DNA testing and you know swabs and stuff that GSK, you know, case out in uh, in Oakland and in California was just solved because the police went through a genealogy website that some family members and yep. and you know got a hit, which is kind of amazing, and you know maybe offers hope in this case that maybe some DNA can be obtained, um, you know, with with without you know, without consent, I guess. I don't know. Is that uh, you know the right term? I don't know. Yeah, by by accident, collection of a cigarette butt. That ultimately, yeah. you know, hypothetical. Uh, honestly, I mean, it's going to take, and I know Sid's done his part to try to take advantage of a disgruntled or rejected relative, uh, wife, girlfriend of a suspect. And, uh, uh, Marshall mentioned it's, it's, it's going to be someone to say something. Uh, I would like to be present or hopefully when they do get a shot at the suspect here that the interview strategy is not spontaneous, that it's well orchestrated uh, and uh, maybe go back through transcripts, analyze those before, in other words, a well plan because that is what's going to ultimately catch the offender that I think is guilty of this murder of Brandy. Great. Well, uh, in one minute, we're going to take a very short break just to get some more wine and beer in us. But um, I just want to say that, you know, Tom Davis and Sid Liddell, I first met them um, on the phone um, in like 2004 because of the Ed Smith case that he just referenced, um, where they had worked a cold case into their retirements, uh, uh, or at least, you know, Sid was already already retired. And 16 years later, they solved the case. And when I asked them why did they do it, uh, it was either Tom or Sid or, 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 or the two of them said, because we promised the man's daughter that we were going to find his killer. And they did. Yeah. And so you guys are my heroes. And, uh, and, and with his voice, he's going to be on season four, <laughs> uh, even if he wasn't involved in this, in this next case that we're going to look at. Can I, can uh, I add a personal note yeah, to of course. something, John? Let me tell you, this guy... Cops and reporters used to really not get along. This guy you got to get along with. He single-handedly uh, served Brevard County residents very well with Clarence Albert Zaki. One of the meanest bastards in the world. He killed a prosecutor's brother and responsible for other deaths. He molested his five-year-old stepdaughter uh, for years. I mean, he, he was just, he's a bad guy, and thank God he's about to die in prison. But John got a call from the stepdaughter, and John forwarded that on where I got it and was able to go in and successfully keep the guy in prison for the rest of his life, uh, which is too good for him. So John, uh, we, the relationship we've got 
uh, is is good. And and for a journalist and for the cops, the whole world's changed a lot. I mean, the journalists today we work with, and uh, this guy's a heck of a writer. I keep trying to get him to let me tell him my old cases, and he write the stories. But I'm 70 now, <laughs> and uh, he better do it soon. But uh, no, he's because I'm starting to forget crap. But no, he's he's done well. And John, I, I do appreciate you as a, your writing and your stories is phenomenal. I've oh well, thanks, Tom. I I really appreciate that. And and and. <clears throat> In my defense as a journalist, I told the woman, I can't write your story, but I can set you up with the police if you promise that I get your story first. So, let's <laughs> yeah, <that's, that's> <laughs> take a, uh, about 10 minutes to get some more food, as it has been replenished, and some wine and beer. All right, and then we're going to come out and speak with Sid Liddell and with, um, and with Debbie Rogie, Brandy's mom. Thanks. Alrighty, so, um, you know, when we decided to choose Brandy's case for, for season three, we just, you know, every time we write anything about Brandy, anytime there's anything, the numbers go off the charts. There's so much interest in this case that we decided to do it. And, but I had never really written anything about Brandy Hall. I, it, it just, I, was, I was there at the paper when, when she went missing. Uh, and then a few years ago, I got a call from an old-timer who said, I'm an old, retiring, I'm an old, retired detective working his last case. Can you help me out with some, with a story? And so uh, I met with Sid Ledow, and it turned out that I had met him years earlier on the Ed Smith case, and he's my hero. So uh, will John Wayne, I mean, will, will Sid Ledow please come up to the stage? Have a seat here, big guy. So appreciate you being here with us. Uh, when you talk, just please write into the microphone. Okay. But um, you are 78 years old. Yep. Be 79 in about two months. Wow. And um, you've been working this case for free mm -hmm. for about how long? Since, um, let's see, February of 2010. Now... I know the answer, but they may not know the answer. Why do you give a flip? I mean, why do you care? Why aren't you out on your cruises? Um, why aren't you out puttering in the garden? Why aren't you out fishing with a cane pole somewhere? Why on earth are you still working this case? The city of Palm Bay spent a tremendous amount of money training me. When I graduated from the academy, I got hired. And <clears throat> Harry Carey said, okay, I'll put you back in detectives until I can come up with enough money to buy you some uniforms. He never did. <laughs> and I spent almost 20 years back there as a detective. I, I have one set of uniforms that, that, that I used once to take a picture in. And that's about it. So the rest of the time back there, I didn't, I didn't think like a patrolman. And, but I learned very quickly that if you want to solve cases, you've got to find out who knows what. So I talk with the patrolman. I interview people. And... It's been, I've often said I've never solved a case yet. All I do is talk to other people, get the little bit of information off of them, and I stick it together. I could write pretty good. And uh, that, that's the way that, that it happens. 
But you haven't answered the question. Why are you still doing this? Why aren't you in your bikini somewhere on the beach right now? <laughs> I'm not interested in that. I, when I retired from the state attorney's office back in 2001, um, I told my wife, uh, you know, you've always accused me of making you play second fiddle to the United States Army, and that was true. And then second fiddle to the Palm Bay Police Department, that was true. And to Norm Wolfinger, that was true. But I said, now you're the only thing that I've got, and I'm going to stay close to you. I don't care what you're doing. <laughs> Laundry, dishes, taking a bath, running a, I'm going to stay right there. She flipped out on that one. <laughs> Bought me a guitar. I joined the band. I was in the band for 10 years, uh, bluegrassing all over the place. A lot of interest in old tractors. I go to tractor shows and cruises and all that. But I like working cases. I like finding out who did it, trying uh, different things. There's uh, several several cases that go back many years that that I did things to that I thought, oh, this is going to get kicked out. But it didn't. It was legal. Get a confession off of somebody and then read them their rights and then make them write it down. Well, did I violate their rights? No. Supreme Court said no because they kept on talking. But I already knew when, when I read them their rights, they were guilty because they admitted to it. Things like that. So to learn how to use the law to really back you up. The Williams Rule, for instance, other, other crimes that you probably committed, use them as evidence. You can't always do it, but I did it. I, I'm just interested in that. I, I've lived in Palm Bay since 1973. That's my city. I love the, the police department, and uh, that's where I met my wife. Uh, and Sue, unfortunately, she passed away uh, about a year and like six months ago, mm-hmm. like a year and a half ago. And um, I tell you what, folks, uh, she was amazing. Uh, when I first, I mean, I like I when I I had gone to their house for an interview uh, in in early on in this whole thing. Uh, in fact, it was just for a story for the paper. And after that, I was on Sue's Christmas card and a birthday card list, and I got a birthday present, and I, mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. And sometimes I'd call the house, I'd say, um, in the Brandy Hall case, and she goes, well, he's in home right now, but I, I have the answer for you. <laughs> and yeah. she would tell me the answers. Uh, so yeah. she was as involved. Uh, how hard has it been for you to move on since she... She passed Extremely away. Extremely difficult. But, you know, a couple of days before she passed away, it was right Christmas Day of 2016, we talked a little bit about Brandy and some other things. And she said, well, you're going to solve it. I know you'll solve it. So she was my greatest cheerleader. You're talking about getting cards from her. One of the first things when I got involved with the case is, he got any kids? I said, yeah, there's two of them. We'll find out their birthdays. I knew what was going. Yeah. There's going to be cards and money in the mail there. So. I, I didn't talk about it. That's fine. You know, that, that's what she had fun with. Yeah, yeah. How often do you think about Brandy? Oh, that's every day. Really? Now, every you've day. never met Brandy Hall? No. No. Wow. Do you ever worry, Sid, that um, you're not going to solve this thing before you, you join Sue up in heaven? That enters my mind. But I've got a lot of friends that keep telling me, yeah, you'll get it, you'll get it, so... I don't let that affect my morale or, or anything. I just keep on trucking. Now, um, about the case, 
when you and Doc Jones, who's another great guy, he was the topless guy in the uh, in the like video montage we we did. He doesn't look that. I mean, that was he was he's a little bit older now, uh, but uh, you said that uh, the first thing you had to do was rule out Jeff Hall. Yes. How did you do that, and why did you feel that way? Well, we talked on the way up there. Doc was a lieutenant in homicide with the sheriff's department, and I was lucky when I first went to work there that I kind of attached myself to Doc and Al Monroe and, and, and uh, a few other people, and I learned all the good points off of them. So Doc said, let's hit him up about a polygraph. And I said, okay. So Jeff, you've written the governor of the state of Florida three times complaining that nothing's being done. Make you a deal. You go on the polygraph, you pass it, we'll work. You fail, we'll put you in jail. He said, let's go for it. Two polygraphs, and he came out squeaky clean. And he's been cooperative the whole time. And Absolutely. So, and There's certain ways that you can ask questions or say things and, and watch a return from the person you're talking with. I have never seen the slightest amount of guilt in that man, and neither has Doc. Now, um, I want to ask you a tough question here. For those of you who have listened to the podcast, you know about the tip, right? The missing tip. Jasmine Campbell, she goes out and she sees a fire captain's vehicle. She sees what she believes to be Brandy's truck. She notates it. She puts in a tip. It went missing for about five years or so. Yes. Do you think that was accidental or do you think that somebody, you know, maybe a friend of the suspect or... Uh, that was accidental. I'm positive of it. I, when you're working a case like that, it, even if it's solved, you're talking two to three weeks out of your life. And you'd be surprised at the number of papers that are generated just on one case with, with you know, you found him and the guy standing there that did it. You're still talking to Xerox box full of stuff. I think it was inadvertently lost. Uh, that's, that's unreal. If you've listened to season two of the podcast, you'll know a, a, about the William Dillon case. Um, a Satellite Beach man who spent 28 years in prison for murder that he did not commit. And when the sheriff's office reopened the case after he was exonerated and identified the four real killers, their names were on a tip in the folder in, in, the, in the sheriff's office the whole time, yeah. all 28 years. It's just, it's just mind-boggling. Um, you know, maybe these... Actual tip sheets need to be on like big paper or something, and not. It was on really an eight by ten. It was. It was, was it really? Holy smokes! And then a lot of the stuff was pre-printed, so you had to put name, rank, and bumper number on there. Wow. So that's unreal. Because I mean, and you and I have spoken about this. Jeff wasn't talking because of his attorneys. And yes, that's true. Um, Randall Richmond. In his own words, he went in and he lied on the on on Friday. He was. He went caught. back in on Sunday with a second story. The tip goes missing. If that tip had been found right away, how solve how much more solvable do you think this case would have been? Probably ninety nine percent because Tom Davis was involved involved with it. You don't ever want to do something and get Tom on you. I know he's like Inspector Javert, you know, from like Les Mis. You don't want yeah. to steal any bread. It, like it's interesting. I watched that, and he uh, he did the Christmas speech thing. You know, you, you there's all different techniques of of um, interrogation and getting a um, a confession. And at one time, uh, Bob Swartz was a sergeant with the Palm Bay Police Department. And I tell you what, if if Bob and I got on you, you were gone. And Tom's that good too. He 
but he had more advantages because he can read your body language. You know, if you're talking with somebody and they start doing something like that, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. He, he's got a problem. Right. He knows something that you want. Wow. Um, what are you most proud of in, in this case um, regarding something that you or Doc or the both of you have uncovered or, or learned? You know, what, was, what has been so far the... That probably like your proudest didn't moment. do it because that's who they were looking at. Yeah. Um, and then there was there's other suspects. There was three or four other names uh, that came up. Two brothers and uh, another guy and, and a woman. And there were about five others. So we worked it to where who we think did it, did it. And then we went individually and got the other four or five and proved that they couldn't. You know, one guy was fishing out in the middle of ocean or something there he couldn't have done it so you, right. you pretty well work it both ways yeah and uh, i would always i'd call tom and pester him and talk with other people now if anybody out there has ever seen those brandy hole missing signs in palm bay or malabar he's the guy that does it and he's been uh, <laughs> hanging them up for years and mm-hmm. stuff but as almost as quickly as you hang them up what happens to them <laughs> they take them down I know one neighborhood up there in uh, Northwest Emerson. I was putting them up, and I looked behind me, and this little old guy was taking them down. And I was—I had a ladder. I had my cousin. He from West Virginia, and he got long legs, so I put him on the <laughs> yeah, ladder. Yeah, that's how they grow them up there. Put him 15 feet in the air, and this old guy had a ladder. He was taking them down. Well, I went back and I said, "Sir, those are property of the police department." Lied to him. Yeah. Because I was the one that bought them, and he said, "Well, I don't want them in my neighborhood." I said, you ever have anybody missing in your family? What's that got to do with it? I said, you haven't read the damn sign, have you? Mm. So he read it, and he's well, okay. Then he left. Of course, I got three or four signs back off of him, and I hung them up again. But they, they, uh, you put them up with nails. They fall down. The wind blows them and flaps them together like that. So I've got some boards um, that a friend of mine gave me. There are slats for a, a wooden fence. Cut them off about that long, and I put one up here, one here, tack them on there, put there a couple of big nails, yeah. and that ain't going to come down. Well, um, I'm going to volunteer my son to help you next time. He's like six foot seven, so he can. can there you go. You know, so, um, tell him bring his own hamburger. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want to feed that kid, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Sorry, Dan. Um, <laughs> yes, we, we do. He's in. <laughs> In your heart, do you think you know what happened to Brandy? Absolutely. Do you think you, you'll be able to prove it? Me? No. But I'll find somebody that will, and I'll write it down. That's the way I do it. What do you want to say to Brandy's family right here in the front row? Her husband, her mom, her daughter, I've talked with them quite a bit. They've, they've been in the house. The last time Jeff and the kids came over, he brought uh, a big thing of uh, barbecued pork. So they've been in and out, you know, and they're, and, and they're good friends. I, and I told them, I'm going to keep going until I drop. I won't, drop. I won't stop. And I feel for you, you know, that somebody from your family disappeared. I remember um, my cousin was killed in World War II, and he's buried in Italy. And my aunt and uncle were never the same after that. 
<laughs> well, you better stop smoking, or I'm gonna, you know, as you gotta so, you gotta solve this thing before uh, before got long. Got a cat scan tomorrow. <laughs> but listen, I am not gonna make you walk down the stairs, but I'm gonna ask you to slide over so we can have Debbie, you know, come on up. Okay. Uh, Brandy Hall's mom, Debbie Rogie, is gonna come on up. No smoking in here. I no smoking. Years ago, but yeah, maybe I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, for um, for anybody who um, was talking while I was just making the introduction, this is Brandy Hall's mom, Debbie Rogi. Can we give her a nice round of applause, please? <clears throat> Thanks for being here and for being part of the podcast. I know that um, you no. know talking about Brandy is not easy for you. Um, thank, thank you. And, and thank well, you and everybody. Can you tell us a little bit about what Brandy was like as a, as a little girl? Um, she was like a, she was our little girl. <laughs> she was, I don't know, um, she was like a tomboy. She, I'd go to work and then she'd stay with her dad and it's like he, he would show her how to do everything from whatever, working on anything, and she would be able to do anything. She could take, as she got older, she could take things apart, put them back together. And she was, she rode horses and drove four-wheelers, drove the airboat home one, or drove the airboat, drove airboats, and, and she, I mean, she, she was, was a real outdoors, outdoors girl. Yeah. Yeah. She's. And so was she um, a good student in school or average or what? She was a good student. Yeah. I mean, she got good grades. And she, as she got older, she, well, she, when she had her accident and it, it almost killed her, the doctors said it was just a hair, a way of killing her. And so that um, is, a, is the ATV accident that when, when she was 11, I think, um, ATV had like, had like flipped over on her and, and, yes. and um, you and your husband, you didn't realize how serious it was. He was trying to wash her off in the shower or something. Right. I, I just pulled up, come home from work and he, it had already happened and he already had her in the shower and we were getting ready to take her to the hospital because he didn't know how bad it was. And so we took her and still not realizing how bad it was because we thought so we were just going to take her to the hospital and things would be fine and go back home. Wrong. No, she stayed there for a couple of weeks, I think it was the first time, and had and, surgery. And, I mean, she nearly passed away, right? Yeah, they said it was a hair away from where it smashed her. It was a hair away from getting killing her right there. And they had to take her from the head, from the ear to ear, and pull her whole face down to do the surgery. We never left her side. And... We have all those pictures of her too, and that's why I just had my faith because God didn't take her then. He didn't take her then, and 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 that inspired her to want to help others, right? She wanted to be an EMT, a firefighter. After that, is yeah, that right? Yes, it did. Because even at the hospital, she was laying in the bed, and they brought another little girl or boy. I think it was a little girl in there that was hurt, and. Somebody brought her some stuffed animals, and she, on her own, gave that little, per little other person a stuffed animal. And so, yeah, I believe that she wanted to help other people. And she did. 
She did. She did, because I've read her files, and it's, it's just filled with letters from people thanking her. And she, she had a book about so thick of all of her accomplishments that she did, right? I mean, I know she, I've seen that book where she's had it all. And, and Do you remember the first day she, she was hired in Palm Bay as a firefighter, how happy she was? Or could you, you know, like, did she call you or anything? Or? Well, yeah, I remember. I mean, I remember her first going to the fire academy and trying to do it and everything. It was, um, she went, she was always get homesick. She wouldn't go stay the night somewhere. She First time she went and stay, spent the night somewhere, She we had to go get her in the middle of the night because she wanted to come home. So from that day, she always brought her friends to our house because she, she got homesick. She didn't want to leave. So when she went to the fire academy, she called. She finally stuck it out for a little while, and she called, and she said, Will you come get me? <laughs> and, and her dad's like, I was waiting for that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm on my way. <laughs> it's like, he didn't want her to go either, but he had a hard time letting go of her, but he still has a hard time. We all do. Well, and your husband, Cliff, right? Is that the same Cliff? Right. He, um you said that he, he really hasn't done any interviews or anything because he gets too emotional, is that? Right. He, how has this affected him? I mean, just... Really bad. He won't go anywhere. He, at first, he'd go somewhere, and he'd want to just go back home because he missed her, and he, didn't, he felt guilty about doing anything because she wasn't there. So he, he doesn't hardly do anything. He just... It hasn't gotten better for you guys? No. No. Um, you um, you spoke to Brandy the day before she went missing. I spoke to her, saw her every day. <laughs> and what did she say to you that last you know, phone call? I mean, obviously you and her had no idea it was going to be the last phone call. But what, like, yeah. do you remember what was said? Um, just talking to her and. And she asked me if I was going to be, if we were going to be there the next morning. And I said yes. And um, just said, love you. And whatever we talked about, usual, nothing, you know, just normal things. When she didn't show up the following day uh, to court, and for those of you who haven't listened, Jeff had a court appearance and she was expected to like be there, obviously. And uh, when she wasn't there... I mean, she was the kind of person who would show up, right? Right. I knew something was wrong when she wasn't there because she should have been there. She would have been there. And I knew something was wrong. I'm like, where is she? Where is she? It's like, I was freaking out. I'm like, you know, it's like, did she have a car wreck or something? Or what happened? Because she would have been there. And then time went on. And then um, we left there. And we went where I went to Melbourne and went to some friend's house and they were like trying to find out where she was at. And finally, I couldn't sit there any longer. I had to go find out where she was at myself. So I went driving up and down anywhere I could, just go looking to see where, if I could find her. And I didn't find her. And, but I did run into her best friend at one of those crossroads. And finally, at the end of the day, and she told me, um, she said, she come running over to the car window and she's like, they just found Brandy's truck in the pond or, or something like that. And I'm like, what? And then that's when we all went back to the fire station and then they came and told us what was going on. 
and it's still like it's unbelievable. Wow. And um, when they didn't find her, was that a relief to you, or are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Okay. Was but, that a relief? Here, let me. No, yeah, I'm all right. Move, let me move a little closer to you. Hold on. I'm okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> How heavy is this chair? Holy smokes! <laughs> How um, how how hard was it when when um, when she wasn't found in the pond? I mean, what did you think? I didn't know because this is all just a big old shock. I thought I don't know. It was just a shock. It's like. And then, as time passes, you start thinking the worst, or you or fearing the worst. I mean. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we just didn't know what happened or what, why her truck was in there and what was going on. I mean, I don't know. Just and and some people early on and even some today, you know, when they like comment on the stories, they say that she ran away. But you know her as a mother. She would never run She'd away. She'd never leave her kids. No. What not. kind of mother was she? She was a great mother. She loved her kids and she loved her job and she would not put. She would have never left their kids, not in a million years. She, I miss her so bad. And she would just not leave. She would never leave. Um, I don't care what anybody says, she would never leave. What do you think when you see somebody like Sid next to you who's, uh, uh, he has, you know, one foot in the grave <laughs> and the other foot on, on a banana peel <laughs> and uh, he's you know, still out there smoking. No and, banana peel. No, <laughs> and um, but he's, he's working on your daughter's case every day. What do, what do you? I mean, what do you think of this guy? I just want to tell you, you're amazing, and thank you, thank God for you, and thank you so much. And, um, what do you miss most about Brandy, and what are you hoping happens tonight, tomorrow, whatever? What do I miss most about her? Yeah. Just everything, our whole family being together, just everything, and I just miss her so much, and our whole family. And, and you, you are so hopeful that she will, you know, come home, right? Yes, I have my faith. I just have my faith, because I believe God didn't take her whenever it was a hair away from her. And I believe he hasn't taken her now for whatever reason it might be. We just got to wait till God tells us what is going on and what it is. I know that I called Sid my hero earlier, but you're a hero too for coming out here and, and, and like talking <laughs> no, in front not. of these people and uh, um, <laughs> no, a, a about this. So I, I really I, I appreciate you. <clears throat> is there anything else that you want to say about Brandy or, or? I don't know. I think I said a lot in the podcast, didn't I? <laughs> I don't know. I got to go back and listen to that too. I don't know. At the time, you don't know what you want to say, but I just, I just miss her and love her so much, and I just hope she'll hurry and be found. Just have closure to whatever is going on or whatever. Just, I just need my daughter. I want to know where she's at. <clears throat> it just, it's way past time. What about? My grandkids, I mean, they've had to grow up without their mother. I mean, how horrible is that? It's just so horrible. 
thank you again for uh, for being here and being part of the podcast. And uh, I'm sorry to to get you. That's okay. To spot. Uh, I've never sat been in front of a whole live audience. <laughs> it just <laughs> it's usually just us or on TV or something. <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know she'd always want. Yeah, you know, well, whenever they'd be working at the fire station, they'd be working one day on and two days off, and then I, me and my, me and my husband, her dad would keep the kids all day and all night. So she'd always call us and say their prayers with them, and she'd always call and make sure that make sure you put your hand on their bellies and make sure they're breathing. <laughs> like okay, <laughs> like, <laughs> she did. She had to make sure they were breathing. It's like that. She just was a great mother. Yeah. She she loved them so much, and, and I know they loved her too. Well, and, I'd like to ask. Um, Tom and Marshall to come on on back up, and we'll take some questions from you guys if you have any. And uh, if Jeff uh, or uh, any other family members want to say something, that'd be until we have somebody. We have like one or two people with microphones um, out here, so um, just raise your hand if you want to say something and uh, or ask anything. And uh, we'll, let, we'll let Marshall sit there. Tom, you can sit here, buddy. I'm no, no, you're going to stay up here too. You're, you're not done. We're not done with you yet. And then uh, it's a little early, so we do like a little karaoke in a in a in a bit. You can sit here, buddy. You sit here. Tell a funny story before we start. Sure. Here's a funny story about Sid. There's a lot of those. During during the uh, the Ed Smith case, I had occasion to uh, to take Sid traveling and nine different states we went and we were in baltimore maryland and uh the guy from the maryland state police we were working with said look we're buying you guys dinner tonight this little pub and we went and suddenly all these maryland state police detectives started showing up from 80 90 mile away and i'm like what's up Oh, we called them. They're coming to listen to Sid. <laughs> and he entertained them that night for about two hours. I got free beer and tacos. I was happy. But uh, well, yeah, you know, Sid's... <laughs> the, uh, uh, the last interview that I did with Sid in January, I went to his house, and that was, it lasted about 20 minutes. And two hours later, we were still talking about his days uh, in, in Vietnam or... Um, in the in the army and you know counting you know like surplus and, and things just a, is a, an amazing storyteller. Does anybody have any any questions or comments in the audience? Anybody? Okay, there's one there in the middle. All looks are deceiving. Now I'm just curious about an update on the photograph that was mentioned towards the end of the podcast. Yeah, okay, yeah, uh, I appreciate you asking that. Um, if you haven't listened to the podcast, the podcast generated an actual tip. And um, actually, my editor, I think it was Mara Bellaby, who noticed a, um, a user on social media that was listening to the podcast and was calling themselves Brandy and was using a photograph that we didn't have. And we pretty much have every photograph that's out there on Brandy. Rob ran the photograph, you know, like through Google Images, you know, trying to find it. He couldn't find it. 
So we, you know, I, I just filed it aside because I was going to tell it to Mike Pusatier. So I'm talking with Debbie one day, and I mentioned it to her, and she said, what's the photo? And I tell her what it is. And I said, but it's really weird. It has like a, like it's folded. There's a crease going through it. And there was like silence on the phone. Her heart had stopped for a second. Somebody's using a photograph that has been in her husband's wallet for many, many years and is now in a desk drawer in the house. And she still has the photo, so it isn't missing. But it's that exact photo. Not, and it's, it's a glamour shot thing. So like you get like a sheet of them, you know, so there are other photos. But this one has the crease in the same spot and bubbles on it and markings from um, a plastic, you know, wrap that has been on it in her husband's wallet. It's the exact same one. So I sent it to the Palm Bay police who were like, whoa, and they immediately called me back and are investigating. But uh, the, um, the short answer is no, not yet, but they, they are following up on it. The social media company is located in Germany, so they have to go through um, German you know, courts to get a subpoena to find out who the user is. Could you say that again, Jeff? Sorry. Talk to the new detective, and she has started. She's going to to the wall with it, and awesome. They started filing the paperwork with Germany to find out the IP address that they could track down, because it's a company. The service is is a German company, right? But everybody uses it for iPad, i your uh, i iPod, yeah, or it's for podcasting, podcasting. Yeah app that you could communicate on so it's like a facebook for right casting so, right but it's, it's used here in the united states so it could be anybody it could be uh, somebody uh, from it, melbourne or i mean jeff while i have you on the spot how, how weird is that i mean that, that that photo was being used it sent like chills up my spine oh, when and, I, and when i heard about it now see i'm confused about the photo because what i was shown was the photo one of the photos that were in the, your presentation with her a little child that I'll show photo? it to you afterward. It's a shot when she first became a firefighter. So it was originally what I was told in the glamour shots. We yeah. went to Melbourne and she got all their pictures. Right. Okay. Right. No, but this one is the, like it's, it isn't like a copy of the same well, photo. Saying, like, it's probably very likely that some. Yeah. From the dad's wallet, so I don't well, it's weird, and they're calling Which, themselves Brandy. On that note, being that I'm not too politically correct these days, yeah. it really pisses me off. It really makes me mad. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, um, why would somebody do that? I know there's a bunch of sick people in the world. But, I know, it's, it's weird. And I mean, it, it, maybe it could be somebody, you know, I got to look at the positive side. Maybe somebody's trying to memorialize her or whatever. However, you think that once this became an issue on the podcast, that they come up and say, listen, I'm one of Brandy's old friends, and I was just paying respects, stuff like that. That would be all right. Yeah. But the fact of the matter, nobody said anything, correct? They haven't said anything, no. So that means something mischievous. That's the way I look at it. And the Palm Bay Police, you know, by the way, also ran the photo through, like, their more sophisticated um, you know, methods of, like, finding, you know, images on the Internet. And I was told that that photo is not on the Internet except for in that one that one podcast app user. So, anyway. So, I guess it takes some time to get the information yeah. for the IP address. But I will keep you guys posted, um, you know, via podcast and via story in the newspaper on that. Uh, I appreciate you asking that. Any other questions for any of our panelists or anything? 
No? You guys don't want me to sing. Okay, we got some questions there. There we go. Hang on. One thing that I thought was very interesting in the whole case was like when the police officer went and saw the truck and saw the police captain's vehicle and then how that report got lost. I would think if I were that person that took that information that night, saw the news, I would think I would go and say, hmm, what happened to that little tip I gave you guys? Something is really wacky there, and I think it's like a cover-up. Just my personal All right, thanks opinion. for the question. I'm going to let Sid answer this. I think that she did ask about it, but... Okay. <laughs> I'm deaf totally in my left ear, and my right ear has to have a hearing aid. What was the question? Okay, here, she, um, she asked about... Why didn't Officer Jasmine Campbell ask about, you know, where's my tip? What, what, what happened to the tip right away? You know, well, she did, but well, five years later. But I think she's asking why, you know. She never had, she was in patrol section. That's the other section of the, uh, of the building. And she never really had a, you know, a reason to go up there. Um, she thought it was being investigated. She was in right. patrol. She saw it. She, you know. It was, she had been by herself after the FTO program. Three months you ride with a trained officer. She'd been out of that program for about two weeks. She went, she did right, she got out, she checked, she went down to the truck, she drove around it, um, even wrote the tag number down, and was going to call it in. But they had some serious thing going on there, and if you overload the dispatcher, that's something you don't want to do. So she went on to uh, Walmart and, and got her some aspirin, and then that was it. She just, she just went on. You, know, you can't really blame her. She had no idea of what was going on there. <clears throat> That's the first time she had been near a detective, I guess, because she was riding somewhere with Sergeant Pusateer. And she said, what did you ever do with the tip that I turned in? He said, what tip? She said about seeing a fire truck Supervised, supervisor's truck at the Hess station and a and probably Brandy's truck by um, Home Depot. Well, of course, he liked to have a stroke right there. Went back and I mean they dug through everything, records and everything, and and they couldn't find it. So he sat her down, took a long statement off of her, and and we went from there. But yeah, unfortunately, it was five years. There was a question in the back. Thank you. So I know you can't tell me exactly who, but was it a male or a female who contacted the psychic? Oh, um. <laughs> uh, next question. <laughs> Sorry, I can't say anything about that. <laughs> Somebody there have a question? Anybody else? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Regarding the uh, the backpack that was found down in Mims, uh, it was kind of glossed over. Um, they had identified it as Brandy's through an address book. Uh, did it have her address in it, or um, how, how was it correlated back to her? And was there any other you know DNA fingerprints that was covered in that that could lead to any possible? Um, I was told that it was tested for DNA and prints and. Um, it wasn't usable or there wasn't enough stuff um, 
to identify anybody, but Sid, can you tell them um, how did they know that was Brandy's backpack in Vero Beach in the canal? It had her a, a big a book. I don't know what these numbers behind the names were. Jeff, maybe you know. It had eight or ten numbers behind there. Something to do with a with a with a telephone or something. She a who? Nextel, okay. Okay. There was a magazine or, or a, a workbook like kids carried to school. There was a lot of writing in there. There were several hundred names and other things that would have uh, melted, if you would, in the water. And when I looked at it, um, I pulled it out of evidence, and, and I could read the whole thing. It never got in the water. Somebody um, went down there. It had to be... Well, they'd never been in the water. What they did, they drove up, they pitched it out and drove off without checking what happened to it. It did not get in the water. And so we know it was Brandy's backpack because that was her address book? Yes, it was, there was a lot of stuff in there that belonged to Brandy. Anybody else? Yep. George? This is uh, you know, George Santiago, uh, you know, Palm Bay police officer, you know, retired. Yeah, I was retired. Thank God. <laughs> this, uh, this is for Tom or Sid. Okay, the, the night that Brandy uh, is uh, meeting somebody um, over there at Lowe's or Walmart, wherever she's meeting somebody in the dark, and there was another truck that that belonged to the FD or something like that. that okay. leave and and no nobody saw him leave the reason for that he'd already left all right my, my question is now we have an officer jasmine uh in all fairness this has happened before people we've had a serial rapist in the country club for a long time he did like 11 rapes and an officer came up and she says i know who it is it's i'll get back with you i forgot his name and we're constantly asking her, what's the name? What's the name? And she can't remember the name. And we end up catching him 11 days later. That's the guy. She, but that, that happens with these officers. They're so busy. We're shorthanded back then. You, you just, it's a shame. We miss those things all the time. And, but my question is to Tom or Sid, when you interviewed Randall, did he voluntarily say he saw her that night, or is he denying that? Do you, do you, or, did, or is that just like something he's praying that you guys don't bring up? Right, <laughs> said she had communicated. They communicated. Keep in mind. 
edit now? Yeah. Uh, Randall was supposed to appear with Jeff's hearing the next day, right, Jeff, if I remember correctly. And they had communicated, and he began to whine. So they communicated by phone, but he did not admit any contact, George. So he by phone only. He's not even volunteering that he, 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 he met her up that night. Because he, he doesn't know about the officer. Right. Maybe he does, and he's praying to God that... You guys well, don't know that. The radio signals and all that that track back, uh, it was messed up. But uh, the fireman, as Sid said, swore that he did not leave the station. It was impossible. Yeah. Well, later, Sid found out that it was that spare truck of the retired officer, uh, FD officer. Yeah. Uh, but no, to my, he never did. The, what I heard, George, he... He never volunteered. Phone that. only. The precious phone, the only person that she was going to contact is she's disappearing. And this cell phone that was the only means of contact that was going to be maintained, he alleges he drove north on I-95. And threw it away. And threw it away. Two hours later, he's talking on the telephone, the same one. But he still said he was talking to her later, and why... Well, there were things I could have been asked. Why would you throw the only contact away if you're going to be the only contact? And did he give any information um, that he was having a relationship with her? Yeah. He yeah. did? Yeah. It okay. Yeah, yeah I've, I, I have listened to that entire interview, uh, you know, George, um, uh, w with Wayne and Tom. And at the time, he admitted to um, a one, a, uh, a, you know, one instance affair, but I guess, um, you know, Sid uh, and Doc, uh, he said something to them later on, uh, admitting that it was, uh, that he had been involved in a longer relationship with her, and so. Another question? Yeah. A couple questions. Um, number one, there was a lot in the podcast about, about Randall's contact with Brandy on an average of 52 times a day. Was that verified? That is what uh, Wayne Ivey said, and I think that's how we phrased it because my editor had the exact same question. Um, you know, Tom or Sid, I mean, I'm assuming that, you know, Wayne Ivey was being truthful, and also you were being truthful when, when you said, you know, I don't know if it was like 52 times a day exactly, but, you know, Wayne said that, contact yeah, contact every day. There's but I mean, was that verified, you know, through records, Tom? Was that? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, right. It was like text message. Yeah, yeah. It was like mainly texting, but yeah. There's a difference between contact 52 times a day and daily contact. And she worked at the fire station. He worked at the fire station. Hence, I think daily contact wouldn't be out of the picture. Right, no, I think that we, I think that like we stressed either telephone or text message, you know, 52 times a day, yeah. You know, it contact. Was, you know, was that, that on the phone that he threw away, or was that on a different phone? That was, uh, well, one was a Nextel phone, and one was a phone that he threw away. Is that guys? Yeah. And, uh, which is when, you know, when I had Tom come in to do the interviews for the podcast, 
and he mentioned that, you know, I was like, well, he said that she was going to call him. Why would you throw away the only phone that she's going to call you on? It's, it's kind of a... Yeah, and, and, and I agree. The, the most telling thing in the podcast was assuming he, he called her or they had contact 52 times a day, and then the day she goes missing goes to nothing. Right. But if that made him a suspect, then it seems like if they had an affair going that was kind of long-lasting, there must have been people that saw them together. Yes. But I didn't hear anything like that in the podcast at all. Well, I think we alluded to uh, in, in, like, in, like you said, the report that, that they were seen together and, um, and, and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, is it going to make him a suspect? They, they, were, they were known as Blaine in, in their circle of friends. Their yeah. Right. Yeah, and if it doesn't make him a suspect, it makes him a bad friend. Then, right? If uh, if your friend goes missing and you stop calling, it, uh, hey, you know, where are you? Anybody else? If I'm not mistaken, her bunker gear was pulled up from a pond in Palm Bay, and then Palm Bay Fire Department was presented with that gear. And they went out to the woods to investigate. Is that correct? Could you say that one more time? I'm sorry. Palm Bay Fire Department went out after finding the gear, and they went out to the woods and investigated their own for a few hours before initiating police department contact. Isn't that odd? Well, I think what they found was the uh, was her like bunker gear, and so the uh, the Palm Bay Fire Department because it was it was like right there. And please correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but they went out just to see what what the heck was going on, but and then. That's weird because you're finding gear in the middle of a pond that's pulled up by a fisherman. I mean, that to me is like a, a court where I'd actually initiate police work and contact, not go out and wander into the woods trying to see what I can find. I will let one of these guys answer. Uh, Sid, she's asking if, you know, why the, why the Palm Bay Fire Department waited to call the police after finding her gear, shouldn't they have called right away? Maybe. It, actually, it was uh, stuff from the Malabar Fire Department she was no longer associated with anything in Palm Bay. And they wondered, now what the hell is this, you know? And then finally, they started putting two and two together, but they tromped all over the scene, almost all the way around that pond. And uh, eventually somebody said, yeah, we better call. So they, they called. I don't know, I don't remember from the time that, that the first firefighter got there that the police was called. It, it was a lapse of time, but I, I don't like remember how much. I mean, I've dated firefighters before, and any time that they've ever encountered a scene where there could be an active crime, they would stop and call the police department and not keep going. I didn't understand. Well, she's saying that uh, I was um, obstructing a crime scene. I was just going to say, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but, but they didn't even know that a crime had been committed, and even today won't even say that a crime has been committed. Uh, I mean, because she's missing. Somebody stealing the stuff out of her truck, getting chicken, and throwing it away. So they didn't know what they had, you know? They had no idea. I got a question. Yeah, Jeff, here. Answer it. Answer it yes, no, or plead a fifth. Me? <laughs> Was it ever reported during the investigation that the spot that Brandy's truck was found is a known spot of hangout for Brandy and Randall? That's where they used to meet at. 
In the podcast, yes, we said that. Okay, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that part. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Along yeah. those lines, Jeff, one would expect from a criminalist offenders will, I'm sorry, offenders will go to their comfort zone. To dispose of the victim, et cetera, et cetera. That's another red flag that would come up for me. It was a comfort zone, and and yeah, it was reported. That, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm telling you. Oh yeah. Class down there, um, when she worked for uh, the, the St. John's Water District, right. they would take her down there and teach her what aquatic weeds were and how to kill them. So she was very familiar with that area, and she used to, she was kind of a loner at times, wanted to be alone, and she'd take her lunch down there and eat and then go back to work, which the the St. John's office wasn't very far from there. Right. It's comfort zone for the offender, too, I think, Jeff. If we ever get the two people that are suspects to interview again, how do we get a guy of your caliber to just sit down and read their body language and interview them? And not just some, um, like, how do we get someone with your experience to interview him again? Yeah, well, call me, I'll call Tom. <laughs> yeah, now that you reached out for that, I, if I'm around, I'd be glad because, in my opinion, and John had asked earlier, would it be solved and I said by someone talking uh, nobody better than the suspect you can't rush into that interview that interview is the crucial thing that's gonna oh, at least be hopefully the thing that would push the prosecutor to at least file charges or enough that I'd make probable cause arrest and take my lumps later when they said this is a crappy case. Uh, that's just the way you do it sometimes. But that is, to me, the most important thing that will ever happen in this case, for what that's worth, is how and when we get the chance to interview the guy that I think's guilty. Uh, I have no problem. I would tell him that. And I know Sid would. Uh, and John. John. She always tells me, don't always run your mouth and tell the way you really know things are. But I'm like, I'm retired. I, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Jeff, you know, you were in public service. The, the true story is, and honestly, I, I'm not going to, it's politics. Bottom line, you don't want to step on somebody's toes because everybody wants to be popular. And my former employer... Uh, well, we were a hell of an outfit, in my opinion. We had some very good people and some excellent labs and stuff. Uh, it's political. And I, I remember as a young copper saying, I'll never go down that trail. Well, I didn't, but your bosses do. And that's who controls the money, you know. I mean, that's, you know, I'm not going to sit here and BS you, Jeff, I mean, or the rest of you. And, uh, let me tell you, this guy right here is—he pumped more life into these cases than he's amazing, and his wife Sue, as John said, was too. Uh, they're just good folks. You for the things that you've done for this case, 
Um, I just don't understand the lack of um, from the police department how they don't want any other parties interested in this case to take it to the to the next level. I just it's, it just breaks my heart because we know the relationship between the fire department and the police department, and it's just very frustrating from an outsider looking in. And things could have been handled in a different way, and this case would have already been resolved. Well, and uh, you know, I have to agree. I'm a little frustrated myself, as is uh, our photographer who was asking me about this earlier. Malcolm Denmark said, um, "If you've listened to the podcast, uh, Richard Walter of the VDoc Society, uh, a you know world-renowned uh, um, expert in cold cases." offered, um, who has already worked this case, offered to come down here and work for free to try and put a case together. And I believe that Sid and Jeff were just going to pay for his airfare um, to, to like come down. And uh, the Palm Bay police, um, you know, balked at it and said, um, when we find something new, we will. And, you know, I, I mean, I can understand that, that other profilers have already worked the case and, and and all that, but if somebody's going to work for free for you, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I would probably take it. What do you think, well, Sid? Mr. Walters, uh, oh, he's good. He is good. I remember sitting out there in the flower bed pulling weeds one time, and Sue said, phone call. She brought the phone out to me, and by the time I got out of there, my damn head was burning from the sun. I stayed out there about two hours. He's got a system that very easy. He documents everything that a person does for the last two years. How they, do they close the door to the bathroom? Do they turn on the, the hot water with their right hand or left hand? How do they fry an egg? Over easy, over medium. Everything that you can find out about that person for a year or two. Then all of a sudden, bam, there's the event. And then what changes? Does he... Okay, over here, he's not religious. Over here, he can't take his nose out of the Bible. But he doesn't try to sell it to anybody else. Over here, he shines his boots. He's always sharp. Uh, breaks starch every day. Over here, he looks like a damn slob. The changes. And Mr. Walters can change that into um, evidence, if you will circumstantial evidence and then throw a handful of stuff in there and and maybe you'll get it i i've never worked one like that before that's like some of the other things that have come along since i got out of it the expertise search warrant things like that so i'm hoping eventually if, if nothing happens through this if nobody calls that yeah we'll get mr walters down here spend a week and let him throw it together because i think he can do it I think we're uh, you know, running out of time, and um, Brian Bergeron has given us a great rate, and I don't want to uh, overstay our welcome and have him charge us um, you know, more for being here in his beautiful theater. But I want to thank everybody for showing up here tonight, and, uh, and especially our four guests. Please, one more round of applause for them. Uh, one thing I am going to do, I'm going to call over there tomorrow and say, hey, those tip sheets, don't put them on white paper. Put them on red paper. Put a big flower in the middle or whatever. But serialize them. 
and keep track of every one of them. Put them on a different color paper. That works. I used to work for a two-star general in New Orleans, and he color-coded everything, but he never lost anything. And one last thing from Debbie. I just want to tell everybody thank you to you, John, and thank you for everybody, and thank you, and hopefully from this podcast something will come of it. Something's got to come of it. All I, something's just got to come of it. Just has to. Just has to. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you